Welcome, everybody. We'll begin now with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for the precious word that you have faithfully delivered to us. And we thank you that it never gets old. Each time we read it, each time we study it, we learn new things about you and about your great plan for the redemption of mankind. We give you thanks for these things, and we ask that you would work through this study this evening to help us to better understand you and your ways and how you have brought about your tremendous plan of salvation for us and for all of those that you call. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to begin studying the book of Luke. This is only part one. We'll cover part two uh, next time we meet. We don't meet next week because next week is the, the first Wednesday of the month when we have corporate prayer. So in two weeks, uh, I believe that's the, the 10th of June, I believe. That's when we will next have the Wednesday night study. So tonight we're going to be looking at Luke, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. The book of Luke and the book of Acts as well uh, are addressed to Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God. Some scholars suggest that the address is generic, that there isn't really a person named Theophilus, but it's, it's to it's addressed to all people who are lovers of God. But, but the more natural way to, to read the, the address is that there is a definite individual who is probably in view. Theophilus is probably a, a certain person. Uh, and he, he may have been a person of rank. In other words, he may have been a, a government official, a Roman official, because uh, the writer uh, of the gospel addresses him as most noble Theophilus. So he may have been a, a person of rank, a Roman official. Uh, the name Theophilus may be an alias. Maybe, maybe, he, uh, maybe that wasn't the person's real name, but maybe Paul was using that uh, to protect him so that the Roman authorities wouldn't uh, come crashing down on him since he was uh, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Uh, he may he may have even been Luke's patron. In other words, he may have been the person who who uh, funded Luke's research and, and writing. And, and even though it's addressed to an individual, uh, a wider reading public is in view. So it wasn't just for the benefit of Theophilus. It was the benefit for all lovers of God, really. And uh, the fact that we are still reading this gospel today uh, indicates that that's what God intended anyway, is that it reach a, a wider audience. The flight, the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, the gospel, the history, the uh, travel tales. The facts, the, the early church writers and, and scholars agree that the unnamed author of this gospel was most likely Luke, the physician, the traveling companion of Paul. And we can read about that in Colossians 4, 2 Timothy, and also in uh, Philippians. Or excuse me, Philemon. There's only one verse there, so uh, Philemon. Luke is thought to be a Gentile, a Gentile believer, uh, the only non-Jewish author of a New Testament book. Like Matthew and Mark, Luke was probably written sometime between AD 60 and 70. I'll talk more about the, the dating of the, of the various Gospels uh, after we go through all of the four Gospels. Uh, here's what we know about Luke. He was not an eyewitness, but he did uh, compile his account by interviewing eyewitnesses, by talking to eyewitnesses. And Luke would have had ample opportunity to do this because when Paul uh, returned to Israel, and he was arrested, all during that time that Paul was being held in prison in, uh, in Israel, Luke had plenty of opportunity to compile various sources and to interview eyewitnesses. So he, he developed his, his gospel from, from that. 
uh, he used multiple sources in compiling his account. He didn't just use one source, it was very thorough. He used many sources and talked to many eyewitnesses. He was an educated man, he writes very good Greek. He also wrote the Book of Acts. Other characteristics of, of the book, Gospel of Luke, of Luke. The ancient historians, Jerome and Eusebius, uh, tell us that Luke was born in Antioch, Syria. This is likely true since Luke shows an exceptional, exceptional interest in Antioch in the book of Acts. Antioch, you may remember, was, there was a large Jewish population there in Antioch and also Antioch was the, was the hub from which the early church sent out its missionaries, from which it did its missionary work. That's where, where Paul began his missionary journeys up to the Gentile world. We do not know where Paul met Luke, uh, but at least one author believes they could have met when they were students at the University of Tarsus. So it's possible they, they had known each other before, even before Paul became a Christian. And then Paul later met up with his old friend again and, and told him about the wonderful things that had happened in the life of Jesus. And from that point, uh, Luke began to accompany Paul on his journeys. So the evidence that Luke is the author, first the uh, internal evidence, uh, the we passages are, are in the first person. So, so this who wrote the book, books of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, was a, a, a companion of Paul and traveled with him. We knew that much. The author of Acts refers to his former creda. So he had written another work before the Book of Acts. And we believe that that former creda is a reference to the Gospel of Luke. Both Luke and Acts are addressed to Theophilus. So we think very likely they were, it was written by the same author. The author of, this is some more about the we passages now. The author of Luke Acts was a companion of Paul since he uses the first person certain sections of Acts. So beyond a certain point in the book of Acts, he starts saying, we went there and we did this and we did that. So he was an accompanying uh, person with Paul. And Timothy and Mark are both referred to in the third person, he. So neither of them is the author. Luke is the most likely person. The internal evidence, uh, the evidence found inside the book, the author's theological emphasis is like Paul's. It, it fits the known character of the author with his Greek interest. He's very interested in uh, Gentiles in his works and his literary ability. So it's very much in keeping with the idea that Luke is the author. He uses a great deal of medical language and some passages may indicate an outlook of a doctor. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. In a passage where both Matthew and Mark speak only of a fever, Luke gets more specific and refers to a, to a high fever. So there is this, this interest in this thinking like a physician. the external evidence, the evidence found outside the book. Luke's name is associated with the earliest manuscripts. So very early on, Luke became associated with the Gospel of Luke. The early church fathers accepted Luke's authorship. Irenaeus, and Tertullian, and Clement, and Origen, Gregory of Nazianzus, Jerome, Eusebius, they all attributed the book to Luke. Adolf Harnack, a liberal scholar, agrees that it was written by Luke. So even, even a liberal scholar agrees that it was written by Luke. Colin Hemmer, a noted Roman historian, agrees that it was written by Luke. So there's very good reason uh, to believe that the, the Gospel of Luke was indeed written by Luke. The landmarks. The Gospel of Luke is the most complete account of Jesus' life from his birth and ministry with crucifixion and resurrection. Luke provides specific details about Christ's life on earth, adding to the reliability and trustworthiness of his, of his historical account. So Luke is very 
very thorough in his telling of the, of the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ. Um, the other gospel writers go up through the, the resurrection, but Luke goes even beyond that into the ascension. He's the only one of the gospel writers who covers the ascension Christ after his resurrection and his 40 days on earth. As the longest of the synoptic gospels, Luke took a methodical and orderly approach to his account, focusing on Jesus' teachings about salvation and his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. In particular, Luke emphasized Christ's humanity as God's son, targeting his Greek-speaking human-centric audience. The book also stresses Christ's kindness toward the weak, suffering, and outcast. And we'll see more about that later. Luke 2.11 announces Jesus as the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Savior identifies his mission. Christ the Lord identifies him as the true Jewish Messiah. Uh, Luke 19.10 gives us the whole book in a nutshell. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So we'll see that in the itinerary, the outline of the book. The first part of the book is descending. Jesus is introduced and identified as the Messiah, 1, 1 through 4.13. Then next we see the seeking, Jesus revealing and restoring, 4.14 through 21.38. And finally, the saving, Jesus is sacrificed and sovereign. Sovereign in that he rises from the dead. Chapters 22 through 24. The Gospels, the four Gospels, uh, the four proclamations of the Evangelion, the good news, they serve less as biographies and more as testimonials to the most astonishing historical event ever. God became flesh and walked among us in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the, the Gospels aren't just biographies. They aren't just telling a story with no real purpose. They're, they're telling us a, a, a very specific story for specific purposes. And that's why you see slightly different emphases in the, in the various Gospels. Luke was especially interested in portraying Jesus as fully God yet fully man. Jesus himself used the key term son of man to emphasize his dual nature of humanity and exalted status. This title identifies him with us, our struggles and our weaknesses, more closely than, than any other messianic title, also highlighting our great need for forgiveness. And forgiveness is one of the themes that Luke emphasizes in his gospel. When we left Malachi, the Persian Empire ruled the world. It was in power when we entered the Old Testament. When the New Testament opens, we see a new leading power in Europe in the Middle East, the Roman Empire. Augustus Caesar was the Roman Emperor from 27 BC to 14 AD. Tiberius, that was during the time when, when Jesus was born. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman Emperor from AD 14 to 37, the time when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Pontius Pilate was the Roman procurator of Judea from AD 26 to 36. So he would have been the ruler, the local ruler at that time when Christ was crucified and rose. The Romans put a descendant of the Edomites on the throne of Judea, Herod the Great. He was the, the, the local king at the time that Christ was born. He built up Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple, into a majestic complex but he was also a cruel and paranoid ruler. His son, Herod Antipas, succeeded him in Jesus' day, reigning over the regions of Galilee and Perea. So this would have been the Herod who was ruling at the time that Jesus was crucified. And incidentally, Luke is the, the only one that tells us that Jesus appeared before Herod in his trials. The other gospel writers all mention that that Jesus went before before Pilate, and, and Luke does that too, but he, Luke is the only one who mentions that he also appeared before Herod. 
So what can we learn from the book? Well, one of the things we must never compromise the truth that all people, regardless of ethnic backgrounds, social status, race, or gender, become spiritually equal when they receive the gift of life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke focused on God's redemptive plan for the whole world. Luke's genealogy takes us all the way back to Abraham. Remember that Matthew only goes back as far as, as uh, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, excuse me. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew only goes back to Abraham. But, but Luke connects us Jesus, through Jesus Christ with all human beings from God's original creation. So that is just the different emphases of Matthew and, and Luke. Luke. Matthew just goes back to Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Worry is the result of reversing our priorities. So often we seek our own comfort first and expect the kingdom of God to just fit in where it can. Even though Jesus made it clear we are a priority to God, we seldom make him our priority. And when he's not our priority, that inevitably leads to us worrying about the very things that Jesus told us not to worry about. So we need to make him our priority. Though God's will for families and churches is unity and peace, we must also be aware that the gospel of Jesus Christ calls for a choice that may bring separation and division. Jesus told, told his followers about that in the book of Luke. The choice to follow Jesus Christ may disrupt family unity when some members remain hostile toward the gospel. So we are instructed as, as Christians to love our enemies and to do everything that we can to make our family relationships uh, operate smoothly. But we must realize that if some family members remain hostile to the gospel, it does cause separation, division. Uh, because we read all of the four gospels, sometimes we, we forget which, which events appear in which gospels. Does this, uh, does something appear in all four Gospels, or just some of the Gospels, or is it unique to one or the other Gospels? Well, these are the events that are unique to the book of Luke. Uh, the birth of John the Baptist, that's only found in, in the book of Luke. The Annunciation of the Angel Gabriel to Mary, that's only in the book of Luke. The Adoration of the Shepherds, that's in the book of Luke. Uh, the other gospel writer that tells us about the nativity is Matthew, and he tells us about the wise men and the flight to Egypt and the uh, slaughter of the innocents. Luke is the one who tells us about the shepherds, and the shepherds did arrive at the manger shortly after the birth of Christ. Uh, Luke is the only one to tell us about the circumcision of Jesus. On the eighth day, the the Jewish babies, boy babies, where do we circumcise? And Luke is the only one who tells us about that regarding Jesus. And along with that, his presentation at the temple is only told to us by Luke. That's where uh, we read about um, Simeon and Anna at the temple, when he was presented at the temple after the 40 days. Some more events that are unique to Luke, the visit to Jerusalem at age 12. Luke is the only one who tells us anything about the, the childhood of Jesus. Luke tells us about the, Jesus preaching at Nazareth. He tells us about the, the story of Zacchaeus. And he, I mentioned before that Luke is the one who tells us about Jesus appearing before Herod during his trials. Luke is the only one who tells us about the, the mocking of Jesus by Herod. And then we also read about the events on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. That's only told to us by Luke. Uh, there's some miracles that are unique to Luke. The miraculous catch of fish with focus on the actions of Peter. The raising of a, of a widow's son emphasizing the compassion of Jesus. The healing of the crippled woman of 18 years on the Sabbath, emphasizing uh, healing on the Sabbath. 
when I talked about the, the book of Matthew, I talked to you about the various kinds of nets that are used in fishing in first century Israel. The cast net from the Mark, from the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke. And there's a parable about the drag net in Matthew. Both of these kind, types of nets, the, the cast net and the drag net, are used for fishing close to the shore. The kind of fishing where you go out in the middle of the lake in a boat, uh, that's, that would be the trammel net, and that's the type of net we read about in, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Miracles that are miracles that are unique to Luke. The healing of the man with dropsy, another healing on the Sabbath. A more uh, modern term for dropsy is edema. The healing of the, of the ten lepers and a mixed crowd of Jews and Samaritans. Normally Jews and, and Samaritans wouldn't mix together in a crowd, but these men were outcasts from both societies. Both the Jews and the Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with them, so they were uh, gathering together for uh, safety and for, just for companionship, because nobody else would take them in. Uh, the healing of the servant of the high priest here. Other, other uh, gospel writers mention about the, the servant of the high priest here being cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane, but, but Luke is the only one that, that talks about how Christ healed the servant's ear. Uh, the types of miracles, and it's important to understand the three different types of miracles that we read about in the Gospels. We read about nature miracles, demonstrating Jesus' power over the forces of nature. We read about healing miracles, demonstrating Jesus' power over sickness and disease. And we read about resurrection miracles, demonstrating Jesus' power over death. Not only did he himself rise from the dead, but he also raised several other people from the dead, demonstrating his power over death. And in one section of the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, we see all, all three of these types of miracles. We see a, a nature miracle in the stilling of the storm. This is in the, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 and 8. Healing miracles, we see the healing of the centurion servant and the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. And we see resurrection miracles, the raising of, of Jairus' daughter. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. And his daughter was raised from the dead. And also the raising of a woman's son. And I want to take a, a closer look at a couple of these miracles. Uh, this is talking about the woman with the hemorrhage, the woman who had an issue of blood, as they call it in, in the King James. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. And though she had spent all, her, all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. This is talking about Jesus now. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, and though she had spent all her money on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment. And immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and press in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, she decided, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Why was she so afraid? Why was she trembling? She was ceremonially unclean. 
anyone she touched would be made unclean. If she touched a respected rabbi and rendered him unclean, she would be in big trouble. She was so relieved when she was healed and Jesus looked upon her with compassion. You see, when we read this story through our 21st century eyes, we just see it as a medical problem, a health problem. But for this poor woman in the first century, it was much more than just a health problem. It was a religious problem. It was a social problem. It was a problem that affected every aspect of her life because she was ceremonially unclean. Back in Leviticus chapter 15, we read about this type of uncleanness. Now, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual purity, impurity, she is unclean. So a woman would be ceremonially unclean when she had her period each month, but once that was over, she would immerse herself and be made clean again. But this poor woman was unclean, ceremonially unclean for 12 years. That meant that she couldn't touch her loved ones. She couldn't touch her husband. She couldn't touch her children because if she did, she would make them unclean. So this was a serious problem for her. And it went on for 12 years. Why did the woman have the expectation that she would be healed if she could but touch the hem of his garment? Why did she expect that she would be healed if she touched the hem of his garment? She was not alone. People all over the first century Israel had that same expectation. Why? We read in, in the Gospel of Matthew about uh, another incident similar to this. After the people of that place recognized him, they sent word throughout the region and brought all who were sick to him and begged him that they might even touch the hem of his garment, and all who touched it were healed. So why did all these people have the expectation that if they needed to be healed, they should just touch the hem of his garment? Well, we can begin understanding that. We'll first turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 15. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them to make tassels, the Hebrew word is tzitzit, on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. So all faithful Israelite men wore this garment with tassels on the four corners. There's a photo of a modern prayer shawl. And you can see that the tassels that are on the four corners of the garment. And there's a blue cord in the tassels. But you see, all faithful Israelite men were wearing seat seat or wearing tassels on their garments. But there was something special about, there would be something special about the seat seat of the Messiah. We read this verse in, in the book of Malachi, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The wings in view here are not wings for flying. They are the extremities, the edges. In other words, the hem of his garment. The woman knew from years of hearing the scripture read in the synagogue that if this man were truly the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, there would be healing in the hem of his garment. And there was. I like this story because it illustrates how helpful it is, how important it is to, to understand the, the history and the culture of the Jewish people as we read through the Gospels. It adds so much more meaning to, for us. Another miracle that happened. This is the hill of Morah. 
And on one side of that hill, you see over at the left there, the, uh, the village of Nain. And we read about that in the Gospel of Luke, and only in the Gospel of Luke. And since Nain isn't mentioned anywhere else, you probably think nothing of it. You think there's nothing special, well, Nain, it was in Nain, but uh, it's, it's remarkable what happened there, but the, the Nain itself doesn't mean much. At least you might think that. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. That is remarkable, most remarkable in itself. But it's even more remarkable when you consider where this happened. So Nain is on one side of this hill. And just over the hill on the other side, there was an Old Testament village called Shunem. And we read about that in 2 Kings. One day, Elisha, the prophet Elisha, the successor to the prophet Elijah, one day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived. This woman and her husband uh, made a place for Elisha to stay, because he was traveling oftentimes past this area through Shunem. So they made him a place to stay when he came. The woman uh, had been barren, but Elisha prayed to God and, and miraculously uh, caused her to have a son. When Elisha came into the house, this happened later on now, when, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So the woman's child died. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, because her son had been miraculously restored from the dead, resurrected. So at this very same location, 850 years earlier, the prophet Elisha restored a Shunammite woman's dead son to life. Undoubtedly, the people of Nain had heard for centuries about the wonderful miracle that had taken place in their city. Now along comes a man who performs a similar miracle at the same location. No wonder, fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. I like this story because it illustrates the importance of understanding the geography of the Holy Land as we read the Gospels. I have uh, never been to Nain, so... That's one of the places that I would like to visit when we go to Israel next year. Uh, some parables that are unique to Luke. Each of the Synoptic Gospels has parables that are unique just to them, as well as other parables that they have in common with one or more of the Gospel writers. But these are ones that are unique to Luke the parable of the moneylender. And some of the parables that are unique to Luke are very famous parables, parables that we all remember. The Good Samaritan is one of those. We all remember the Good Samaritan. Well, that's unique to the book of Luke. The parable of the friend in need. The parable of the rich fool. The parable of the unfruitful fig tree. The parable about the lowest seat at the feast. The parable about the big dinner and the great banquet. The parable about the cost of discipleship. The parable of, of the lost coin. The, prodigal of, the parable of the prodigal son. That's another very famous parable that we remember. The parable of the shrewd manager. 
parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That's another famous parable that we're all pretty familiar with. The parable of the master and his slave. The parable of the persistent widow. The widow who, who uh, was in need and kept badgering the judge for relief. And of course, the point is made that if uh, if unrighteous people will eventually give in and help you out, uh, certainly God, who loves you dearly, will take care of you. Uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The the Pharisee was uh, went before God very in a very self righteous way, whereas the tax collector realizing his need, went before God with humility. Uh, you'll get a chuckle out of this. This is the updated version of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is the uh, COVID-19 version of that parable. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, diseased, carriers, or even like this non-essential employee. So, uh, all of you are muted, so I'll just have to imagine that some of you are maybe laughing. But I think there's more than a, more than just a little of the, of the self-righteous elitist element, a pharisaical element in, in this present crisis, because it often seems like everybody thinks that, well, I couldn't possibly have the coronavirus, but you, I don't know about. I think you're probably sickly and diseased and, and you might infect me, so just stay away from me. There's a little bit of that attitude, it seems, in society right now. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the special emphases of Luke. It's not that the other gospel writers don't talk about these things, but, but Luke seems to emphasize them. He, he talks more about them than, than the other gospel writers. So he has an emphasis on Gentiles, an emphasis on Old Testament references, an emphasis on individuals. So he, he zeroes in on individuals and often gives us their names. He has an emphasis on money, an emphasis on the poor, on women and children. I mentioned that, that he, he does concentrate on the, the outcasts of society, the people who, who didn't have much clout in in first century society. Uh, there's an emphasis on the glory of God, an emphasis on rejoicing, an emphasis on music, an emphasis on prayer, an emphasis on forgiveness, uh, an emphasis on angels, and an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is shown by this Gentile emphasis. It's shown by the fact that he traces Jesus' genealogy back to Adam, not just to, to Abraham, the beginning of all mankind. Uh, the, the, the fact that he explains Jewish customs and locations that indicates that he's focusing primarily on Gentiles because he wouldn't need to explain Jewish customs and locations to, to Jews, but he's explaining them for the benefit of, of non-Jews, Gentiles. Uh, there are many references to the Roman emperor and to government officials. And the use of the word teacher rather than rabbi. So he uses the Gentile word for, for teacher rather than the Jewish word rabbi. Uh, the almost exclusive use of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for Old Testament citations. Some of the other uh, the, the other gospel writers also take some of their quotations or references from the Septuagint, but, but Luke does that almost exclusively. Takes it from the, from the Septuagint. Uh, the story of the uh, non-Jewish Good Samaritan. Luke is the only one who tells that story. Uh, we, we've heard this story so many times about the Good Samaritan that we, we tend to think that all Samaritans were good, but, but that is the point of of Jesus telling this parable of the Good Samaritan because for Jewish people, the idea of a Good Samaritan would be an oxymoron. And as far as they were concerned, there's no such thing as a Good Samaritan. All Samaritans are bad. 
So we, we by hearing this story over and over about the Good Samaritan, we, we've lost some of the, the, the shock value that the story would have had to Jesus' audience. Uh, this, the story of the thankful Samaritan leper is another incidence of a good Samaritan, much to the shock and surprise of, of Jesus' hearers. And the reference to their language in, in the book of Acts, he refers to the Jewish, the language that the Jews speak as their language, not our language. So that's another indication of his Gentile emphasis. Old Testament references. This, this may be somewhat of a surprise. In his gospel, Luke has 90 to 100 direct citations or of or allusions to the Old Testament. Only the book of Matthew has more Old Testament references, 129. So how could this be? If Luke is a Gentile, why does he refer to the Old Testament so much? Well, it may be that Luke was a God-fearer. A God-fearer is a Gentile who had strong sympathies for Judaism without becoming a convert. So these were Gentiles who regularly attended the services in the synagogue. So they knew about the Old Testament scriptures and they knew about the Jewish customs, even though they hadn't taken the step of, of becoming a convert to Judaism, they, they had strong sympathies for Judaism. Such a hypothesis explains on the one hand Colossians 4, where we, we read that, that Luke, that the author uh, of the book of Luke and book of Acts uh, was definitely not counted among Paul's uh, Jewish companions and, and the Gentile focus of Luke's writings. And on the other hand, the author's intimate knowledge of the Old Testament and Judaism. That's how we can account for that by, by seeing Luke as a God-fearer. I'll talk more about God-fearers and their importance in the in the early church when we get to the book of Acts. Luke stresses individuals more than the other Gospels. Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, Simeon, Anna, Martha, and Mary. Levi, the centurion, the widow of Nain that we read about earlier, the woman whose son was raised from the dead. John the Baptist, Gadarene, that's the man that Jesus cast demons out of and put them in the pigs and the pigs went running off into the sea. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, the woman with an infirmity, the would-be disciples, Zacchaeus, Luke is the only one who tells us about Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, Philippus, Simon, and Joseph of Arimathea. So there's a great emphasis in the book of Luke on individuals many of them even named. He paints personal portraits of many of them. For example, Mary and Zacharias and Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, Achaeus, and Cleopas. He doesn't just mention them. He, he, he paints for us a, a picture of their, of their character, their personalities. This book, the Gospel of Luke, has, has a stronger emphasis on money than the other Gospels stressing Jesus' mercy to the poor, once again, the outcasts, the, the lowly, and his warning to the rich. It's not wrong to be rich, but uh, as, as the Gospels tell us, of whom much is given, much shall be required. So the rich do have a responsibility to use their wealth in the right way. The poor, Jesus is a champion of the poor. Seven or eight of his parables in this book contain references to the poor. The Gospel of Luke has more emphasis on women, mentioning women 43 times, compared with uh, 49 times in Matthew and Mark put together. Uh, and naming uh, women, naming Elizabeth, Mary, Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, Anna, Joanna, and Susanna. Luke focuses on children. He, he refers to the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. He refers to babies in general. Uh, he refers to an only son, an only child. Luke stresses praise and glory to God. Praise to God. Glory to God. 
blessing God. So you can see there are many scriptures referring to the glory of God in related aspects. Many of you, uh, you women, you ladies who uh, had the, the tea of glory probably referred to, to many of these verses dealing with God's glory. Uh, this book highlights joy and rejoicing. You can see all of those scriptures about joy and rejoicing in the book of Luke. Music. Luke is the, the most musical of all the Gospels, containing the song of the angel to Mary, the Ave Maria. The Ave, the Ave Maria that Catholics have uh, contains both good and bad. I mean, the first part of the Ave Maria is good. It's scriptural. It's part about uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That part is good. But the, the last part uh, of the Ave Maria that Catholics have is, is totally made up. You know, it says, uh, Holy Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. Well, there's nothing in Scripture about uh, telling us to pray to Mary. And there's certainly nothing in Scripture telling us that Mary has plays any role in, in our salvation. So that last part of the Ave Maria is, is totally unscriptural. Uh, there's the song of Mary, the Magnificat that, that she Magnificat that she uh, recites when she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and that is only found in in the Gospel of Luke. The song of the angels, the glory in excelsis Deo, that the shepherds announced to the the, the the angels announced to the shepherds rather. And the Song of Simeon, in Latin, is called the Nunc Dimittis. That uh, Simeon recites when uh, Jesus comes to the temple as, a, as an infant. That Nunc Dimittis means, uh, now you are letting. Remember, Simeon says, uh, now you, you are letting me die because I, I've, I've seen the Messiah. So all of these famous uh, musical songs are, are given to us in the book of Luke. Prayer is mentioned multiple times at Jesus' baptism or Peter. Uh, I believe that that's a reference to the time when Jesus said to Peter, uh, uh, Satan desires to have you to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. Uh, the prayer that Jesus gives in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, and many other times. So there's a lot about prayer in the book of Luke. Luke stresses God's forgiveness. There are many, many scriptures in the book of Luke regarding forgiveness and his love for sinners. We see that over and over again. How Jesus had compassion on them. There is more about angels in Luke than in the other Gospels. They are mentioned 23 times. They appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, to Mary, of course, to announce that Christ would be born, Messiah would be born, to the shepherds, to Christ in Gethsemane, uh, to the women at the tomb. Angels will accompany Christ at his second coming, we are told. And they rejoice, we are told, when a sinner repents. And finally, they, they carry believers to Abraham's bosom when they die. The Holy Spirit. Luke stresses the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who empowered John, Jesus, Mary, Elizabeth, Zacharias, and Simeon. More references to the Holy Spirit in Luke than in Matthew and Mark combined. So there's, uh, there's much in Luke about the Holy Spirit. Those are verses, a uh, table of, of verses in, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, that talk about the Holy Spirit. As you can see, there are many of those. Luke lays a foundation for the study of theology with such concepts as the person, Christ, and his death, 
can read many references to that. The nature and meaning of repentance, what it means to repent, how we go about it, salvation, that's a, a great emphasis in, in the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke. Well, it's all about salvation. Because remember, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Sin, there's much about sin in the book of Luke. And justification, he uses that word. And, and that Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses that same word and develops it in his epistles, particularly in, in the book of Romans. We read about justification. And remember that, that Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. So he received his theological training from, from directly from Paul. Uh, incidentally, because the events described in the Gospels uh, occur before the epistles, the, the material that's covered in the epistles and the calling of Paul and so on, we tend to think of the Gospels as being written before the epistles, but actually Paul began writing his epistles before the Gospels were written. And so the Gospels were written because in the enthusiasm of, of the early Christians, they were thinking that Christ would probably re return soon. But as time began to go on and, and many of the eyewitnesses were, were dying, uh, they came to the realization that, hey, we need to record this. We need to write this stuff down because this is, it looks like this is going to be significant. Uh, it may be a while before Christ returns. So actually, the, the Gospels were, were written after um, the Apostle Paul began his epistles. And that is part one of the book of Luke. And as I mentioned, we'll uh, do part two in two weeks. Next week is covered prayer. So in two weeks on uh, June 10th, we'll have our next study on the book of Luke. We'll close with a word of prayer and then we'll go on to have our, our question and answer period. Father, we thank you that you have given to us this book, this gospel of Luke, this uh, most comprehensive of the Gospels, taking us all the way from the nativity of Christ on through his death, and burial, and resurrection, and even his ascension. From where, whence he will return to his people. We thank you for this. We thank you for all of the ways that you have blessed us with the book of Luke and all the things that we have learned about Christ and about his great plan for all of mankind. We give you thanks and we ask that you would help us to continue to study, to learn, to glean the precious truths that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.